0: back to the matrix law pod after a short break which i hasten to add wasn't spent neither durham or barnard castle and i'm joined again by our hosts uh, murray hunt and helen mountfield this week we're going to be returning to hong kong to discuss the alarming developments there with human rights lawyer patricia ho and i should warn you we recorded it earlier and it's a deeply savoring conversation Before we do that, no self-respecting podcast on the rule of law could fail to discuss the events in the United Kingdom over the past 10 days, in which, as we all know now, Dominic Cummings made a 260-mile dash in seeming breach of the lockdown rules that the rest of us thought prohibited us from doing the same, bringing a new meaning to the expression I can't believe my own eyes. Now, the facts and politics of what happened have been well rehearsed, but a few rule of law angles remain outstanding. And I'm going to start, Helen, with you, with a legal starter for 10, which is, can you tell us whether or not Dominic Cummings actually did break the law or guidance or rules?
1: Well, I think it's very likely that he breached Section 96 of the Road Traffic Act 1988 by testing his eyes. Um, driving yeah, come on, that's the easy bit. About 60 that's miles an bit. hour um, for 30 <laughs> miles each way to Barnard Castle, <laughs> so we've got that one. Um, but I don't think that's really what you're asking me um and i think the question is whether any of those um journeys breached the um prohibition which existed in the uh, coronavirus regulations until today actually um which were the prohibition on leaving home without a reasonable excuse um and the legislation is incredibly unclear it starts off saying um, what well, started off saying you could not leave home without, or you may not leave home without a reasonable excuse, and then had a very long list of things that were reasonable excuses, but it wasn't an exclusive um, list. And I think that's the, the, the uh, loophole through which Dominic Cummings has snuck in his own uh, mind or justification that he regarded it subjectively as a reasonable excuse to get in his car and, and drive up for potential childcare reasons um, in case he got ill. I suppose there's a question about whether it is what he thought was a reasonable excuse or what a court would think was a reasonable excuse, but it's certainly not clear. And there are then um, in guidance, um, various uh, explanations of what people should and shouldn't do. One of which was that you shouldn't leave your primary residence and go to a second home or a caravan or a campsite or even a third home. Um, Although that wasn't mentioned Mm -hmm. in the guidance, but the, 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 issue is that the line between the legislation and the guidance is so unclear um, that it is difficult to say he did breach the law although I think most right-thinking people would say that the objective outside observer would not think it was reasonable to drive 260 miles um, with a child in the car to visit elderly parents in a second home um, in those circumstances.
0: So Murray can I ask you this flowing from Helen's answer I mean here we have Helen who is Uh, 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 one of the great public lawyers in our country, who is unclear whether or not Dominic broke the law. I suspect if you asked most people before this event whether what Dominic Cummings did was prohibited by the law, I think virtually everybody would have said, yes, it is. So we've got this state of confusion. And you've written about this recently for Prospect magazine about the impact of all of this uncertainty on the rule of law. What, What are your thoughts?
2: Yes, I think you're right, Richard, that uh, according to an opinion poll in one of the papers over the weekend, 81% of the public think that he probably um, broke the rules. Um, Whether or not he broke the law um, in in the sense that he's uh, vulnerable to prosecution, I think Helen's right. It's extremely unclear. Uh, And that is the essence of the problem here, I think. The government from the very start of the lockdown has been far too ambiguous about what the law is in the strict sense of what it actually requires people to do or not to do on pain of possible penalty um, and what is guidance and what is advice and how they can um, how they should be behaving in a way which will prevent the spread of the virus Um, and and, and really what we've been seeing in the last uh, week or so um, is the spectacular unravelling of that um, of that uh, ambiguous strategy of the government to try and encourage widespread compliance but by confusing people about what's rules, what's guidance, what's merely ministerial colouring in of the gaps. We had some rather comical examples of colouring in of the gaps. Michael Gove's example of the exercise uh, that people were allowed to take was the best example uh, depending on people's level of fitness he suggested. (laughs) Uh, So I think the problem really has been a, a lack from the st- a lack of clarity and certainty from the start in the way in which the government has communicated to people exactly what's expected of them um, and what's legally required of them, and then what they should be and shouldn't be doing as a matter of guidance. And I think we've why is, that, in, is the unravelling. Why is that problematic from the rule of law perspective? Because it undermines public trust. I think the, the government is completely dependent on public trust uh, to be able to make its response to the virus effective. Um, It's it's introduced, um, rightly, a series of lockdown measures which are practically unenforceable on the scale which is necessary to actually counter the virus. And the only way in which it can achieve adherence and compliance with those restrictions is by relying on public trust. Uh, And public trust depends on the public believing in institutions which will uphold those things in a fair way. Uh, So I think the fury which we've seen uh, unleashed in relation to um, uh, the Dominic Cummings um, revelations about what he was doing during the lockdown... Um, reveals that lack of trust that the public has in the publics in the government's um, messaging. So I think the government really does need to be much, much clearer, not just in the content of its messages and what the restrictions are and what the guidance says, but also what the status of those uh, rules are.
0: I mean, as you say, there are kind of at least two aspects to that. There's the breaking of the rules per se, or the perception that government officials are breaking the rules. And then there is also the way that that is thought to be justified by um, those in government and the kind of sense of public outrage, and there's one rule for us and one rule for another. When I reflected, not least I was listening to Michael Gove again talk about how he would on occasion go and test his eyesight by driving um, in a car as part of his defence of Dominic Cummings. I was kind of... Reminded, really, you'll recall a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to David Cole of the ACLU in America about the assault on truth and how that uh, undermines the rule of law. I don't know, Helen, what thoughts you had on Govian and type responses in defence of Cummings?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I think their lack of plausibility um, does does suggest that we make the law, then we decide whether we broke the law. And if you and you're just stupid if you didn't um, understand it the same way as us, and the more implausible the excuses, the less the trust is um, that law is made for everybody in the public interest. And I do think that is very um, damaging to uh, respect for the law and the rules, and actually for the government and the institutions that uphold them, because the sense of one one rule for you, one rule for us, um, is, is um, undermines democracy.
0: Well, what about the decision? Some would say extraordinary decision of the Attorney General, Suella Braverman, to tweet support for Dominic Cummings before the Durham Police had made a decision as to whether or not to prosecute.
1: Well, again, I, I mean, I think that I think it was extremely unwise. potentially could have been open to judicial review, I suppose, that the Attorney-General had closed her mind to whether or not an offence had been committed before she could possibly have had time to inform herself of the facts and the application of the law to them. But, I I mean, it's the the lack of respect for the constitutional boundaries and the appropriate constitutional roles that people like the Attorney-General play, which I think is very worrying in this context.
0: And Murray, as we currently moving into an ease down, but with the prospect of potentially the famous R rate increasing and the need for further restrictions in the future, uh, what can the government do to try and put the genie back in the bottle?
2: I think the trust question really needs to be absolutely central uh, to that. Um, I, I think it would be quite a good start to ask the behavioural scientists who are advising SAGE and advising the government Uh, To look at this question of trust and uh, and how the government can do a better job of uh, inspiring more widespread public trust and confidence in the in the government's measures, including as we come out of lockdown. I think if anything, the trust required as we come out of lockdown uh, is even greater because there are going to be probably differential restrictions applied in different parts of the country to different sectors. Uh, The fairness that and the the trust and confidence in the fairness of those measures is going to be absolutely crucial. Um, as well as the trust and confidence in the use of data which is going to be gathered in relation to the NHS app and so on. So trust and confidence absolutely front and centre. We need we need the government to take proper advice about um, the best behavioural science view um, of what inspires that trust and confidence. And I think Rule of law considerations are absolutely central to that. We need to have more more openness about the justificatory reasons for relaxations of the restrictions. We need to have more transparency about the scientific advice that's being relied upon. We need to have more accountability in Parliament, more scrutiny in Parliament of the regulations. There's a whole series of rule of law principles, which I think are front and central in inspiring greater public trust. So I think the government really needs to be grappling with that. And one more, if I could just add one more footnote to what Helen has said. In relation to your question about the attorney general, the normal thing that would happen in a situation like this with a special adviser is that the cabinet secretary would conduct an inquiry uh, and establish the facts. Uh, And again, we haven't seen that initiated. Uh, And that's uh, another um, trust and confidence inspiring ordinary process which ought to take place in my view.
0: going to move now to Hong Kong. It seems like years ago, but our second ever podcast was recorded in early April of this year, in the relatively early stages of the international lockdown. And we called it Power Grabs, COVID across the globe. We spoke to human rights lawyers in jurisdictions facing particularly acute threats in Hungary, in Israel, and in Hong Kong. And I remember listening to the views of colleagues in Budapest and Tel Aviv as they described how their regimes were using COVID as a cover for entrenching power and feeling deeply depressed. But I was really reassured chatting to our Hong Kong guest, the leading human rights expert, Patricia Ho, because the impression I took away from her that Hong Kong was doing okay, not only on the health front, building on its experiences from earlier public health crises, but that in early April, there was no sense of an immediate threat that China was gonna do anything dramatic. It all seemed rather calm. That optimism appears now to have been gravely misplaced. We broadcast on a day in which seven former foreign secretaries of the United Kingdom have written to Dominic Raab, urging him to take decisive action in response to China's efforts to impose draconian security laws. We've watched with horror as those laws have been implemented and with grave concern as protesters have again taken to the streets of Hong Kong to protect their democratic rights. Joining us again to discuss these developments is Patricia Ho. Patsy, welcome.
3: Perhaps Thanks again. <laughs> perhaps we
0: should just start with a description of what's happened in the week since we last chatted.
3: Yeah, um, thank you for that introduction. Um, you know, I thought... I've been thinking back to that chat and felt almost embarrassed by how my mind was at such ease at the time. Um, and and fi- I, since then, I've just been finding it difficult to catch up to the developments um, that's been happening. But essentially, um, at the moment, what we're really facing with is um, a proposed legislation which can um, be in place in Hong Kong as early as August this year, that's two months away, Um, that's meant to, and I put this in quotes, to prevent, stop and punish threats to national security by outlawing acts and activities of succession, subversion, terrorism and foreign interference in the city's affairs. Now, um, those those are pretty much all we know. Those those words are all we know um, about the law um, that's going to be introduced in Hong Kong. Um, and you know, just just focusing on those words, it's it's quite difficult for anybody to know how to react to them, because they're just so broad um, and um, potentially very very far-reaching um, in Hong Kong's jurisdiction, because. It can have um, an immediate impact on our judiciary, the whole uh, rule of law system in Hong Kong. It can very well completely change the way law enforcement looks in Hong Kong. Um, Specifically, um, you know, in Hong Kong right now, law enforcement includes mainly the police, immigration, customs and excise, and so on. Um, We're faced with the possibility of having mainland um, agents, um, authorities, Come to Hong Kong and implement laws themselves, such as arresting people with um, um, their interpret by by and through their interpretation on the, of this law. So I think um, across Hong Kong um, in all sort of sectors, and this is even in in the uh, economic space, um, people just don't quite know how to react.
0: Could you just explain to people where, where these laws generate from? I mean, this isn't laws that are sort of homegrown from the uh, Legislative Assembly in Hong Kong. No, uh, no. Where, where are these coming from?
3: Sure. So um, back when um, the British were discussing the uh, handover of Hong Kong to China, um, there was a very long period of a discussion um, of the laws that would um, be implemented in Hong Kong. And the guiding law that was agreed upon at the time was the basic law in Hong Kong. Um, And the basic law is essentially Hong Kong's constitution. Um, And it's got very clear uh, parameters about the extent of our powers. Uh, Particularly, it also notes that the Chinese government uh, may uh, basically have reach when it concerns uh, their national security or, or um, issues that, you know, generally, uh, nation, not gen, generally national security issues um, that would be beyond uh, Hong Kong's jurisdiction. Um, in the basic law itself, there's an article called Article 23 that um, required the Hong Kong um, authorities to, or, or Hong Kong government to establish laws that will protect national securities. Um, And that's been a long-standing discussion in Hong Kong. You know, what should that look like? Um, And people have had great fears that um, an overly broad legislation on national securities could impede on uh, Hong Kong people's freedoms. Um, And so, you know, back in uh, ever since the handover, whenever this topic of um, legislating under Article 23 came up, there's been huge demonstrations um, on the streets. And... um, Basically, the government, whenever they raised it in the past, have actually backed down and um, with- withdrawn um, their efforts to try to implement any laws in this regard. And um, Even last year, um, when they were talking about a, um, a separate extradition bill, essentially, to China, um, that was not nearly as broad as uh, Article 23 related laws. But people went out um, in large numbers to protest against that. Um, And it was really a demonstration to all of us to see just how sensitive the Hong Kong population is to um, any laws relating to national uh, security at all. Um, But at that time, when all these protests were happening, you know, nine months ago, there was a strong sense that the government was trying to back out of that. And um, everyone would think that there's no chance they're going to talk about Article 23 now, seeing all, you know, all the reaction in the last nine months. So it was a real surprise, I think, to many when they decided to almost double down, if not quadruple down <laughs> um, now, all of a sudden, and introduce a much, much harsher version of Article 23-related to uh, related laws than anything that's ever been contemplated or discussed in Hong Kong.
0: What What explains the timing of it?
3: I think that um, in hindsight, what probably has gone on is that the Chinese authorities have been disgusted and perhaps um, threatened Um, or made uncomfortable by the things that have been going on in Hong Kong in the last year. Um, And they felt frustrated with the fact that um, they weren't able to curb it in the same way that they would if things like this would happen in the mainland. And they didn't think that that was right. And, And they wanted to ensure that this could never happen again. And so when things quieted down, um, they probably saw it as um, an opportunity for them to then say, "All right, it's not going to happen again, and this is how it's not going to happen again."
0: And does COVID at all? I mean, the, the kind of the lockdown in Hong Kong—is there a sense from anybody that they chose this moment when it's harder for people to come out and demonstrate?
3: Possibly. Um, you know, back a few months ago when um, I, I I talked about how the Hong Kong population is quite um, supportive of quarantine rules and, and lockdown-related things, um, because people were, were um, focusing on protecting Hong Kong's freedoms in a way, in the sense that we're protecting the way that Hong Kong can continue to function as normally as possible. Um, so it was really difficult for people to um, say that the government was using this against us because so many people were supporting these rules but then things have started changing in the last two weeks um, we've had almost no cases for over a month with the exception of two isolated cases, I mean, this is wildly low numbers compared with the rest of the world. And and the government still um, insisted on uh, rules restricting public gatherings. Um, And while generally people still supported these restrictive rules, um, but people started questioning, especially, and this was especially when the last announcement, they said that these rules had to cover June 4th. Um, And that was the last day uh, of the time period when uh, people could not gather in groups of more than eight. Um, And that was a very clear signal that they were actually using well, many would say it's a clear signal that they were using these rules to to restrict public gathering demonstrations. Um, and since, anyway, since, you know, all these national security uh, legislation announcements, um, there have been a lot more people trying to come out to demonstrate. And we have seen um, how the government has come down very heavily, um, more than ever before to stop any form of demonstrations. And, you know, I'm talking about people singing songs in malls. um, That was banned. Um, People trying to raise some banners in in shopping malls. That was banned. Um, Any sort of protesting in Hong Kong would be immediately met with dozens and dozens of um, armed policemen, um, all dressed in full gear. Um, And it was all very, very intimidating. Uh, So numbers, uh, demonstrating numbers went down drastically because it was practically impossible for anyone to be out on the streets for more than two minutes uh, without being arrested. Um, Things are just so, so different from before this COVID-19 period. Um, You could see that the police have obviously regathered themselves and replotted how they were going to uh, respond to these uh, protests. And, and so have lots of other pa- um, parties.
0: What's been the response, if any, of the courts to um, what's been going on in terms of the clamping down of the right to demonstrate?
3: There are some more um, vocal democratic representatives, as in representatives of the Democratic Party or the Democratic camp that's been criticizing this, but by and large, you haven't seen the more um, middle-of-the-road uh, experts coming out condemning this because it was a dangerous thing to do um, in in multiple ways. First of all, because you don't want to be seen to be um, coming against measures which were combating COVID-19. Um, but secondly, um, is there any point? <laughs> There's a lot of that at the moment. Um, it's, what's happening right now is different from before. It's different from the government proposing legislation under Article 23, because that is under Hong Kong's own regime. Right now, what's happening is, this is not discussed within Hong Kong at all. Um, PRC, The, the NPCSE decided that this will happen in Hong Kong, and we all know that it will happen. Nothing is going to stop it not as though any protesting or any opinions will sway that in any way um, but actually um, everyone needs to think about what they sh- they can do and shouldn't do um, you know with the wordsings i used just now it's what would i want it, it what's crazy is it covers um actions that's seen as preventing foreign interference for example Now, some have raised questions such as, would me having this conversation with you uh, be covered by that? Um, Would an NGO that's covering um, the way the police have enforced um, the laws over the last year in Hong Kong, um, if if they're submitting reports to, say, UN bodies or uh, other human rights groups around the world, like Amnesty Human Rights Watch, would that be uh, covered by foreign interference? Um, and there's a lot of thinking that it might be covered by that.
0: Well, I mean, that raises a really kind of interesting legal question because, I mean, these are laws that, you know, would have happily been drafted by Beria, but whether they apply and how they apply, it's going to be decided by judges, isn't it? And um, or is it, in, is it in Hong Kong, uh, ultimately? Uh, and insofar as it is, what's your assessment as to how they are likely to approach interpretations of these laws?
3: These are all questions which I don't think anyone can answer right now. Um, the question of who can judge these issues is up in the air. There is talk of um, the Chinese government not allowing foreign lawyers to um, judge on these matters. What is meant by foreign lawyers is uncertain. As you know, there are um, non-Chinese judges in Hong Kong. There are overseas um, judges that are appointed in our court of final appeal. Um, does it, is it, are, are we talking about Hong Kong residents or beyond? We don't know. Um Um, There's talk of a specialist court, we don't know if that's going to happen. Um, And I mentioned earlier about um, agents from China that might be empowered to implement the law in Hong Kong. So, you know, for example, if somebody's breaching a law, um, maybe uh, you could have a, a mainland agent conducting the arrests and and the procedures that following that follows that. And there's a question of whether the person will be tried in Hong Kong or not. Um, These these very fundamental issues are all up in the air. So um, I, I feel like it's almost pointless in a way to think about rules of interpretation and all that at the moment, because it's in a way so um, long gone, you know. It, it's it, it, you know, for example, it's a basic um, rule, a common law principle that if if the laws are too broad and difficult to define, then they might not stand. Um, but how how can that not stand in Hong Kong when the NPCSC says it's law?
2: Patsy, can I ask? Um, can I pick up on your? point about it being important for everybody to consider what they can do in these circumstances in particular in the context of uh, Richard referred to the foreign secretaries the seven former foreign secretaries letter Um, at the moment it's pretty difficult Mm -hmm. for any discussion um, about China or Hong Kong to take place outside of the context of the fights that Trump is picking over trade and other things uh, and that's having a bit of a chilling effect, I think, in terms of um, degrees of engagement in these debates. Um, but I've been really interested in your response to the call in that letter, the central call, which is for UK global leadership um, on, on this issue. Um, and, and I'm really interested in your view. Would that be helpful? Um, what, what sort of form might that take? My instinct?
3: response to that is I don't feel comfortable answering that question <laughs> because um, of the possibility of it being characterized as in fighting for an inter- intervention. That's how things are, <laughs> if that says enough. Um, but at the same, but I, I think I'm also very comfortable to say that um, in a way, it's it's like what I don't think that you know us globally. When we look at global politics, um, if China wants to do something, they'll do they'll do it. Um, is there really much room for um, discussion? The, the way that it's introduced isn't introduced as hey, this is an intention. This is what we might do, or this is a threat of something we will do. It's it's not been like that from the outgo from from the get go. They, it's been put in a stance that this is happening. Full stop. So um, for me, it's it, there's no question at the moment about um, deterring them uh, from from making this happen. It's going to happen. The question is, how will everything look like, and how will it be implemented? um and I think we're all waiting to to see how that goes and and in a way you know I suppose um, um, voices out there within Hong Kong, um, especially um, or, or anywhere that say you know let's protect our rule of law as far as possible let's um, uh, protect the 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 basis of our um, economic system uh, for example all of those will make sense and i think um have some sway um, but I, I think at the moment it's clear to most people that politics trump and um you know so so we could probably just preserve uh things that will protect hong kong's economic position as far as possible and let's in many ways, I think the best that we can hope for.
0: What about civil society? What, if anything, can we do on the outside, not in government? Um, Lawyers, those of us um, working in the human rights field, is there anything beyond just kind of expressions of solidarity that, 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 that we can do to help?
3: Well... I think that it's really easy for those focusing on politics to feel very depressed by all of this. But at the same time, my position is that there's a vast hair area in um, human rights law that's about um, protecting the underprivileged, the minorities, welfare, social security, all those things. And I think and and believe that there's still a lot of room um for that work to continue um in hong kong um and on my side i you know certainly hope to uh, continue to uh, build that as far as possible um you know i think in many ways um there's there needs to be a recognition of what um, the mainland government is very sensitive of and what they're trying to get at. And at the core, what they're trying to get at is pr- to protect their national security. So if there are other matters that don't um, threaten that as much, um, those are things that um, probably can survive. Um, and on, on my part, I think it's important to focus on that. Um you know, if if others focus on other areas, um, good luck. <laughs> it makes sense, yeah.
1: Um, I I just wanted to clarify this thing about Article Twenty Three and some of the some issues being outside the jurisdiction of the Hong Kong legislature. Does that mean that they would also be outside the jurisdiction of the Hong Kong courts? Because I was just thinking, if you if you take Yeah, in a a system with expectations of the rule of law, if you take a law that's too broad, then a a court might try to read it down. And the question is, is that going to happen? Or or is it?
3: Well, the thing is, at the moment, this piece of legislation that's being introduced isn't um, contemplated under Article 23. It's included in our Constitution as an annex, as a separate um, piece of law altogether. So. it's the interpretation of that will be very clearly um up to npcsc i think that it will be very difficult i I, well i think i I believe what we'll see is that they will the mainland government will uh, introduce guidelines uh, clarifications uh, one after another it probably won't be like a one-off clear-cut thing but you know, as time goes on, we'll probably see a further interpretation, the further interpretation of of this, um, as they try to troubleshoot, uh, I suppose. Um, It will be very difficult for our court to try to interpret this, because whatever they say, they know it's going to be subject to NPCSE's interpretation. So they will know that if they um, interpret it in a way that contrary to their intentions that will be uh adjusted <laughs> um and that does make the that that's basically the threat to the rule of law now, i was just going to add one more thing which is there, there there's a there's a potentially um like the optimist will say that this is probably not too different from um the situation previously in the uk where um, Supreme Court decisions can be in a way overturned in, in Europe. Um, in a way, people see that they try to say that our rule of law can be preserved in, in that same type of um, concept.
0: Um, I've just been slightly reeling by with, from a couple of your answers, Patsy, because it seems, it seems what you're saying that whilst there might be a little bubble of work in which civil liberties and human rights can still be protected, that's only insofar as they don't try and assert democratic rights or rights that challenge one-party rule in any form, which would seem to be the death now of any hopes of democracy and full human rights for Hong Kong.
3: Yes. Um, You know, I I don't think that the intention um, of the Chinese government has ever been to advance um, the development of democracy in Hong Kong. I think that the intention of the mainland government is to preserve one country, two systems, chiefly in the economic sense. Um, And in a way, I believe that they wish to... preserve rule of law as far as possible as well, because they understand that that underpins the uh, economic position. Um, but, I, and this is, this is where we just have to understand um, the mainland Chinese government's mindset. Um, the line is always at, we can't threaten their sovereignty. We, we can't incite issues within China. Um, and once we, I think, try to understand, understand that mindset, um, I think it will inform us very much of um, where Hong Kong stands.
0: Can I ask you to look into the future as a human rights lawyer? And um, let's assume, as seems likely, that these laws come in and either with or without a provision that foreign judges can't sit on cases that decide the ambit of those laws. The final Court of Appeal at the moment comprises, as you already mentioned, several judges from the United Kingdom, not least Lord, Lord Phillips, Lord Newberger, Baroness Hale, all former presidents of our Supreme Court. From your perspective, if these laws are in place and they're either not allowed to rule on them, Uh, or they have to rule on them knowing that um, how they're ultimately going to be implemented. Do do you think they should continue serving on the Hong Kong courts? Uh, Would they be doing a disservice? Would they be giving their imperture to a fairly undemocratic system? Or would you still want them to be there involved in other cases in the Hong Kong courts?
3: I very strongly am of view that everyone should stay. Um, I, Well, just to give you a picture, there are lots of cases going on at the moment in all the courts across Hong Kong. Um, We have hundreds and we have thousands of cases that's going through the courts concerning... um, people who have participated in demonstrations or riots in the last year. Amongst them, we have thousands, um, well, maybe hundreds, if not thousands, um, young, very, very young people, many of them teenagers, who have been uh, prosecuted for rioting and various crimes that would potentially lead to them being in jail for many years. Um, I can't imagine what it would look like if all the lawyers that are defending them decide that it's not worth their time and all the judges hearing these cases decide the same. Um, I think it's important for everybody to try to do what they can for as long as possible.
0: Well, Patricia, you... you... (laughs) You left us last time with a sense of optimism. (laughs) (laughs) The same cannot be said for today. Um, I mean, firstly, thank you so much for taking time out to join us. I mean, secondly, I think, I mean, from all of us, I mean, the three of us in the, the human rights community here, just our kind of... Kind Our of hearts go out to what your, you and your colleagues and the people of Hong Kong are having to face. And insofar as expressions of solidarity and support mean anything, you have them in abundance from us.
3: Thank you so, so much.
0: Thank you for joining us.
3: You're welcome. And thanks for that. Um, not totally a distraction from the current situation, but, but a very nice time to be able to talk with you about this.
0: We're glad. Glad to be of service.
2: Well, that
0: was a thoroughly depressing 20 minutes um, from Patricia. Helen, what are your reflections?
1: Well, I suppose it just does show the importance of a rule of law framing of these questions. If you're going to have law about national security or terrorism, you know, the devil is always in the, the detail in understanding exactly what's meant, in understanding what the limits of the law are and, and, and how it can be enforced. Um, I was also struck by the analogy that she drew between um, when we were talking about whether the Hong Kong courts would have any role in in enforcing or interpreting and potentially interpreting down this law, which is, well, um, it's a little bit like the, the uh, European Court of Justice and the way that it, it can override um, decisions of domestic courts, because I would think that's a different thing, because the European Court of Justice is itself governed by the rule of law. But it was an interesting reflection, because I think there are people in this country who I would regard as as, opposed, as potentially dangerous to the rule of law, who would say exactly that about the European Court of Justice? Well, here we have a system that, that, that limits what we can do for ourselves, and I suppose it's, it's just an interesting perspective to see how the mainland Chinese government is, is is looking at things and saying there are limits beyond which we will not let you go, and that is it. Well, um,
0: crazy world when we start comparing the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party to the Strasbourg uh, Court of yeah. Human Rights, but those are that is the times we are
2: in. Murray. First and foremost, I think uh, what really came across from Patsy is how difficult it is for someone in her position to, to answer a question um, such as would some leadership from the UK on this issue be helpful or not? I mean, it's very difficult for somebody in her position working in Hong Kong um, to give a, a, a full and frank answer to that question, I think. But uh, for me, I think that does remain one of the most crucial questions for us to answer. Um, Should the UK government be uh, actually trying to lead some sort of global coalition to engage with China on this question in a way which somehow doesn't get sucked into the narrative in relation to all the trade wars going on with the US? Um, So I think that's uh, probably the most pressing um, imperative. What's the answer, (laughs) if that's the question? I was going to ask that
0: too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, for me, the answer is yes. Um, I mean, there's, the, there's uh, as on so many things at the moment, there's a vacuum of global leadership on these things. And I think the UK used to be right up there and trying to provide it. And I think it needs to get back up there.
0: Well, that's a good note on which to end uh, this week's podcast. Uh, thank you both. Thank you to our producer, Rachel Murray. And we will be back next week.